Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent, which means it's the beginning of the new church year. Happy New Year to everybody. Advent is a season, it's a season of anticipation, it's a season of waiting. And as we say here every year, and as a glance at the readings during this time of year will reveal, the Advent, or the coming, we are longing for, is the second coming of Christ. This often comes to a shock to to folks who are not used to the liturgical calendar. You get to Advent and you look up the readings, especially for the first three weeks of Advent, and they're heavily, heavily weighted toward the second coming. And you're like, I thought this was Christmas time. We're supposed to be remembering Jesus. But the church, of course, in her wisdom, understands the deep logic of what's going on here. The two Advents can't be pulled apart. They can't be separated. They're locked into each other. So Advent remembers, right? It remembers, it celebrates with joy the incarnation of the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary. And thus, because it does that, right? Because it does that, it stirs the church up to look for his coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is the basic logic, by the way, not just of Advent, but of the Christian life. In looking back, we look up and out at the same time. What happens at the supper? We look back and remember Christ's death. And in that very act of looking back, we are lifted up into heaven and partake of his body and blood. And that is a foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb. The whole Christian life, the whole architecture of it is there. And it is in the church's memory of Advent as well. To look back to Christ is to be lifted up to Christ, is to be lifted out into the eschaton. To to celebrate the Advent of Jesus is to yearn for the second Advent of Jesus. It's not something tacked on. It's intrinsic. It's basic to the shape of Christianity. And that's what the church is doing. And once one grasps this, and it takes some doing to grasp it because it's not intuitive or natural for us. But once one grasps it, one can agree with the words of the Swiss theologian, Karl Barth, who said, Advent is the only time the church lives in. There can't possibly be any other season. Because the church is always looking back and looking forward. She is always poised in Advent. It's the only season she knows. We don't move on from it. Right? To embrace the Christ who has appeared in weakness is to yearn for his appearing in glory. And where it isn't, something is wrong in the first embrace. In between these appearances, we wait. And as our text will demonstrate, we not only wait, we prepare. We're called to prepare. And that's, that's the rub, this, this preparing. The preparing is difficult because the church often finds herself discouraged or weary. Right? Waiting for so long and he hasn't yet come. And at times it appears like he'll never come. And we're busy, often with Christian-y stuff. So we get distracted, we lose focus. We take our eyes off the prize. The prize is the face of the bridegroom. And Advent is a reminder of this. 
And it takes, it is difficult, beloved. It takes a real reorientation of our natures, of our wills, of our affections to prepare for the advent of the Lord. Right? Christ in you is the hope of this coming glory. And so think of the season, Advent. It's kind of a jarring thing. You know, you're going along, it's September, October, November, you hit Advent, and all of a sudden, ah, oh, I have a yearly opportunity to align myself with the biblical hope of glory and to undergo this reorientation. It's a gracious gift. Reminds us that it's time to prepare. Now, I don't know if it's still on, but a few years ago, I watched a little bit of a show called Doomsday Preppers. I'm sure some of you know this show, Doomsday Preppers. These people believe heart and soul in a coming apocalypse. Right? In a time when, as they like to put it, it's all going down. And I suppose I'm fascinated by it, and on some level maybe attracted to being more prepared than I am for such events. I was reminded of the same thing a few years earlier when I was watching a C-SPAN piece. Right, and The author of a book was being interviewed. The book is called One Second After, which Bob Moncher was actually kind enough to buy me a number of years ago. It's about what would happen if an electromagnetic pulse took the whole grid of the United States out. Right? An EM pulse is what would happen if something like a nuclear device was detonated, not on American soil, but just offshore somewhere in the atmosphere, close enough to the country. And it turns out, right, this is a real threat. Right? There are very serious people in Congress trying to get money to harden our electrical grid right now against it, such a strike. And it was a very sobering presentation, backed by lots of data. There were very serious people in the room, credible people. But as usual, my alarm lasted right up until I changed the channel. Vaporizes, tends to vaporize at that point. I'm left with this gnawing sense that I should be more proactive in thinking about this sort of thing. Dan has been telling me this for 30 years, by the way, that I should be more proactive in thinking about this sort of thing. So I've got this gnawing sense, but let me tell you, it's really not too gnawing. It should be a little more gnawing, perhaps. And so many of these threats in our world now fall into the not if, but when category. Not if, but when. And there are two things about these sorts of disasters which heighten the tension, right? The first is this. Since they are so unlike anything we've ever experienced, they are very easy to ignore, right? Because we're creatures of repetition and habit. Life intrudes, you just forget. We can't assimilate this kind of thing, much less the second coming of Christ. Right? The faculty of our imaginations falls infinitely short of what we are talking about when Christ appears in glory to judge the living and the dead. We just falter before the reality. It takes a kind of doomsday prepper mindset to prepare when the event seems unreal. Right? It takes a sort of willingness to look a little crazy. And second, you realize if such an event should occur, your time to prepare is lost. Right? You can't prepare after the fact. In our text today, this parable, 
is it about an event even more cataclysmic, right? And certainly in the not if but when category. It's about the coming of the Lord to consummate the kingdom of God. It's about the actual wedding of the bride. And it suffers from these same two flaws, right? Like any other doomsday type scenario or end scenario, life just goes on as usual. And we are just skilled at pushing it out of our minds. Even though there are 318 references to it in the New Testament. 318. We still find ways to just navigate around it. And once the event dawns, of course, with this one, there's also no time for preparation. No more tomorrows, no second chances, no timeouts, no recourse. So we're looking at the parable of the ten virgins, Matthew 25. It's talking about this event. And it's talking about taking the event with utmost seriousness and with sober preparation now. Now. So we'll make three points. They're there in your outline. The wedding preparations, the bridegroom's appearance, the aftermath. So Jesus had just at the end of Matthew 24 said some things about be be alert, be watching. I'm going to come like a thief in the night. And our text in Matthew 25, verse 1, opens with at that time. Meaning then. Right? Meaning at the future coming of the Lord, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. Notice the future tense. Right? The whole parable is about what happens in the future when this promised cataclysm comes. And so the, the opening couple verses are like a heading over the whole parable. Jesus often does this when he tells parables. Right? He gives you the synopsis sort of thing. The kingdom of heaven will be like Ten virgins who took their lamps and met, went out to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom, of course, stands in here for Christ. Five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise. The rest of the text will explain just how. How is the kingdom like this? And what differentiates the foolish from the wise? Right? Those should be the two questions in your head. How is the kingdom like this? And what is the difference between the foolish and the wise? Well, you get the difference in summary form in verse 3. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they didn't take any oil with them. These are probably like torches with some sort of wet rag on the top that would burn. The wise took these extra flasks or jars of oil with their lamps, but the foolish don't have that. So you have this setting for the parable. It's a Palestinian wedding setting. It's nightfall. The virgins here are probably attendants of the groom. He's the one they're going to go out to meet. And these festivities would begin at the groom's house. He would then go and receive the bride at her house. And then there's be this joyful evening procession that would lead them back to the grooms for the wedding banquet. You'll notice the bride is never mentioned in the parable. Right? The only crucial thing here is the, is the behavior of these ten attendant girls who are clearly standing in for the bride. They would apparently lead this sort of torch-lit procession back to the groom's house. Right? And clearly their presence with the groom in the parable is considered critical. Notice verse 5. We get a real important piece of information here. The bridegroom was delayed. 
He was a long time in coming. Right here we have some clear teaching from the lips of Jesus that there's going to be some delay between the first coming and the second coming. All the great acts of redemption have taken place. Only the return of the Lord remains. And thus, in one sense, it's always near. Yet, there will be delay. Right? We're living in that delay. And so Jesus teaches a couple of crucial things about this, his return, right in this section of Matthew's Gospel, the end of chapter 24 and right here. Three very simple things I want to point out. First, the timing is unknown, he says. No man knows the day or the hour. Second, there'll be some kind of delay. Third, when I return, it'll be sudden and final. And so we have to take these three things with all seriousness, right? His coming will be at an unknown time. It is now currently delayed, but when it comes, it will be sudden. And of course, one of the things this means is all date setting and all speculation is forbidden. The church has a long history of disgracing herself in the eyes of the world by predicting these things. Now, in the parable, the delay time is for the sake of preparation. Right? It's so that we can prepare. And so the question the parable puts to us is, will the delay lull us into a false sense of security, or will the delay spur us to prepare? Right? What are we doing with the delay in the bridegroom's appearing? Right? That's what human history is. Think of all the history books written by all the historians in the history of the world. Right? You couldn't count them all. Millions and millions of books. I'll give you a one-sentence summary of human history. It's the delay in the bridegroom's appearing. That's where it's going. That's what it's for. That's what it is. What are we doing in that delay? So back back to verse 5. During the delay, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, this is is not a a pejorative, critical remark. Um, because even the five wise virgins fall asleep here. This is probably just a piece of narrative realism. Often the parables will do that, right? It's just just part of the setting. The festivity started at night. There was a longer than anticipated delay. But here's what I want you to see. Notice how how alike the wise virgins and the foolish virgins are. They're alike in so many ways, right? They all have lamps. They all need sleep. They all have invitations to the wedding, right? They all have invitations to the wedding. They all believe in the coming wedding feast. They all profess some kind of love for and allegiance to the bridegroom. Think of that. All ten of them stand in for people in the church, right? The five foolish virgins here are not outside the church as unbelievers, But the crucial difference between them and the only one that matters is about to be revealed. It's about to be revealed. And that that brings us to the second point, the bridegroom's appearance. So verse 6, we're told this. At midnight, right, when it's dark, when you're drowsy, when you're not likely to be watching. At midnight, like a thief in the night, a cry rings out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. 
it's time for procession into the feast. The virgins wake up, they trim their lamps, and the foolish say to the wise, give us some oil, our lamps are going out. Right? Once, once their rags had burned out on their torches, they have no spare flask of oil. Right? And the wise answer, this is in verse 9, the wise answer, no, there may not be enough for both you and for us. There may not be enough. Go, go into town and buy some from the sellers of oil. Now, you might find it hard to believe, but some people criticize the five wise women here for not being more hospitable. Right? I think their point is simple and reasonable. It's if we give you some of our oil, then none of us will have enough oil, and the whole wedding procession will go black. Right? They're showing the same foresight that made them wise. So the parable is not casting any negative light on these wise virgins. If anything, it's saying this. In the day of the wedding of the Lamb, no one else's preparation will help you. You must be ready. You must be prepared. I used to tell Dan during his preparations for Y2K that my Y2K preparation plan is to go to your house. He assured me I'd find myself shut out like the five virgins in this parable. (laughs) Anyway, that's not going to work here, right? Preparation can't be deferred. It can't be delegated. It can't be transferred to another. That's the point of the wise saying to the foolish, you're not getting some of our oil. It's too late for that. And so in verse 10, we're told that while the five foolish virgins are going to buy oil, the bridegroom came, the procession takes place, and those who are ready, those who are prepared, those who are alert, those who've been waiting, they go in with him to the wedding banquet. Notice the intimacy of the scene. They go in with him. He comes for those who are eagerly awaiting him, who love his appearing who groan for the liberation of the created order. They go in, the door is shut. And that brings us to the third point, which is the aftermath. Now, at this point, the parable fades away, really, and the underlying reality shines through. Verse 11, the door was shut. The other virgins come, and they they are apparently successful. Maybe they bought some oil in town. They say, sir, sir, open the door for us. And here the bridegroom just becomes the voice of Christ. Right? He answers them solemnly and tragically from inside. I tell you the truth. I do not know you. Really shocking words, right? And there's a clear echo of Matthew 7, right? Where Jesus says, in that day, speaking of the same day as this day, right? In that day, many, not just a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast demons out in your name? I mean, Lord, we did all of this Christian stuff. I mean, we may not have been longing for your coming, but look at all the Christian stuff we did. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now, in the context of the parable, you know, if it was just the parable, right, This lack of preparation, it'd be a simple sort of forgivable 
breach of wedding etiquette. But it's not that, right? It's clearly grievous to the groom. I do not know you. Failure to prepare or failure to endure means you do not belong to Christ. And one can only see this at the end or in light of the end, right? The the, the great uh, UCLA basketball coach, John Wooden, used to say, failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Now, it's very important to see this. These women are not callous. They are not ignorant. They are not overtly rebellious. If you sat next to them in church, you'd probably think they were splendid people. They love the bridegroom. They've got some oil on their rags. They're at the ceremony. They're on their way to the kingdom. They might be quite active. They probably have a Bible study in their house. They're reading good Christian literature. I mean, they've made it this far. They've made some preparations. They love the bridegroom. Just ask them. Everybody loves Jesus. It's just that nobody wants to actually see his face. They're that kind of person. They love the bridegroom. But you know what? They are not adequately prepared for the end. The end does not impinge upon them. It doesn't shape their current preparation. They're not ready to endure to the end. They're not oriented to the end. And you must be oriented to the end while you're in the middle. Right? It's very hard to tell that this is the case with a person until the end itself arrives. And then finally, Jesus appends a moral to the story. And it's kind of an interesting moral. It's in verse 13. He says, therefore, here's here's Jesus telling you, here's what I want you to do. Here's what the parable means for you. Keep watch, for you don't know the day or the hour. So to watch means to be alert, to be looking. But, But, and this is a point we haven't made, the delay also means that our preparation has to be sustained. Right? We have to sustain the preparation. right? Because the road of Christian discipleship, it can be very long, it can be very arduous, it can be dark, it can be depressing, it can be lonely. Right? We must not allow the delay to numb our sense of expectancy. Right? It is the goal which drives our preparation. It's the goal. Or to put it in a different way, Jesus is combining two things in this parable. Preparation and alertness, right? You can't prepare properly if you're not alert to the end. And you're not alert to the end unless you're preparing properly. The two things go together. We won't be formed right if we don't link these two things. Being awake and preparing. So wisdom, as usual, is having an end orientation. It's a life lived under the sure, certain promise of his coming or his appearing. It's a life which takes the end with utter sobriety now. This is what the five virgins lacked, the foolish ones. They believed that the bridegroom would come again. They were in the church. They were doing Christian stuff. They had something of the Holy Spirit. But they did not take the end seriously in the middle. And when we do this, right... When we are confronted with this cataclysm, think of just how much, right? How much of our lives and our culture and our speech, our passions will just vanish. 
like the ephemeral, rootless, vaporizing nonsense it is on that dreadful and joyful day. Foolishness is not always revealed in advance. That's one of the great lessons of the parable. If there's a biological attack or an electromagnetic pulse, then we will see who's foolish. But not before. Before, everybody looks to be basically doing, doing equally as well. How much more so do you think it will be with the kingdom of heaven? This is what Advent is for, beloved. Because the, because the year blunts this, scrapes it right off of our souls, this sort of sensitivity to the end. And notice, I want to be clear about this. This does not mean we live in some sort of anxiety-driven frenzy. Right? But it does mean this. It means we shake off our indifference to the end and we watch. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. Shake off your indifference. Be alert. Be looking. Be watching. Right? When we confess the Nicene Creed, we say we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. It doesn't say merely we simply believe these things. It says we're looking. We're looking for them. Right? We're looking. Did you look for it this week? We're looking for them. And watching here does not mean passivity. Right? In Jesus' mind, this kind of watching and looking is what is the vital nerve of Christian action. Right? It means a serious life of Christian discipleship. I mean, after all, think about it. In the text, the oil stands for everything you need to be fully prepared for this great day. Right? There's only one thing in the parable you need, enough oil. So the oil represents the spirit and the plentitude and fullness of the gifts of the spirit. This is what we need. And so preparation means taking your calling as a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter or an employee with all Christian seriousness, looking to the reward, preparing under the aspect, if you will, of eternity. It means taking the mission of the church and participation in her labors, in the gospel, in dead earnest. You know, the more time, the more years I spend in the ministry, and the more time I spend with it, especially with Paul in the New Testament, the more I'm struck by how often he says something like this, you know, I did this so that I might present you on the day of Christ. You are my joy and crown in Christ on that day. Right? He is constantly seeing his apostolic ministry as a thing that will have to stand that day. Right? That's when he will get reward. That's when he will see joy. That's when he knows that what he did will hold up. Right? That, that's why he, he can say something like, if I build on this foundation with you know, wood, hay, and stubble, the fire of the day will reveal it. But if I build with gold and, and precious jewels and stones, then the fire of the day will not destroy it. Right? So he's got this consciousness that his, even his pastoral work from day to day is about presenting a people before Christ on that great day. It's all over his work. So he doesn't think, well, there's two, he doesn't think there's two kinds of pastoral work. One where you do lots of really rigorous Christian pastoral things, and one where you do lots of rigorous Christian pastoral things and have an orientation to the end. Paul would think the first thing is just deeply fraudulent. Right? Because it's not infused with the end. He would, say, he would say, that looks Christian, that's not what I'm doing. 
Right? So preparation here is serious discipleship, but it's discipleship infused by, formed by, shaped by, quickened by the end. Right? It means also taking prayer and the scripture and worship seriously, right? Real progress in the Christian life, as if our lives depended on it. There's a beautiful thing that Augustine says about those who are waiting to see the face of the bridegroom. He's talking about Holy Scripture. And he says, Holy Scripture is the face of God for now. Right? We're going, we're looking for the face of God. But we have the face of God for now in Scripture. So what should we be doing? Well, we should be attending to God's face Carefully tracing the lines and the liniments and the contours and the shape of the face of the God we love in the text of Scripture. That's reading Scripture with a desire to see the face of the bridegroom. And that's what Augustine expects us to do. This is why Advent is here. It means, as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, we have to pay much closer attention. Isn't it a blessing of God to remind us, oh, I veered a little here, I'm drifting here, I'm pulling back here. We have to pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift from it. For how shall we escape, he says, if we neglect? Right? The five virgins, there's, again, there's nothing grievous or scandalous or open. It's a, it's a history of neglect in their lives. If we neglect this salvation. So, to prepare means taking the coming joyful cataclysm, ushering in the wedding feast with even greater seriousness than any doomsday prepper takes the collapse of civilization. That's the convicting lesson of the doomsday prepper story. It's not, those people are a little zany. It's, oh, I should take the joyful coming cataclysm that seriously. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, summarizes this parable. And he says this. He says, let your loins be girded and your lamps be burning. Right? First Peter says the same thing. Be, let, the, let the, the loins of your mind be girded up. Be sober and alert. Fix your hope. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1, verse 15. Jesus says the same thing, right? Let your loins be girded. Let your lamps be burning. Fill up your flask with oil. Be filled with the Holy Spirit because the night is long, but it is far gone. And the day has broken in and the day is at hand. The coming one has already come. You know, Spurgeon has this interesting thing where he says, I actually find it easier to believe in the second coming. He says, because, you know, we know the first coming's happened. It's right there in Scripture. We have historical evidence. Jesus appeared. He was crucified. He was raised. Of course he's going to come again. Sometimes we think, well, it's just such a, mag-, you know, the event is so magnificent and so vast that we can't assimilate it. But Spurgeon takes the opposite approach. says, he's already come. And he said he's coming again. Right? So live in the light of that. Advent is wake-up time, preparation time for us, discipleship time. Hear the benediction that Christ pronounces on you in advance. Blessed is the servant whom his master finds doing what he has called him to do when he returns. Amen.